0: How many of you saw the special Olympics on television did you see any excerpts of that on the news I watched a couple of interviews and uh, one family that had a Down syndrome child and really brought tears to your eyes because you saw little excerpts of all of these handicapped kids and youngsters of all ages some of them in wheelchairs doing a simple thing like throwing a ball for a certain number of feet or whatever and some of the most rudimentary sports And here were what they used to call mongoloid or Down syndrome children, and children with every kind of a handicap, missing a limb, missing a leg, maybe uh, uh, multiple uh, sclerosis, or they were uh, quadriplegic, or whatever they were. And this one parent, a woman, had the child there and was talking about the incredible shock. I mean, for nine months they had known they were expecting, and then finally the baby comes and the doctor says, "Uh uh-oh. I'm sorry to tell you your child has Down syndrome, not fully formed. So here's the poor child, and as you know, they all tend to look similar. They have eyebrows that come all the way across, a kind of a moon-shaped face and thick, uh, pug-shaped nose. It's a pitiful, horrible thing. And to realize that I have, well, many of our uh, members have had children with handicaps, and thanks be to God, even though we have two deaf children, they are perfect in every other way, and and athletic, and and have so many uh, things in life that they're excited about. But let me tell you the experience that it was of crawling up behind my children in their crib and clapping our hands or shouting their name and wondering and watching to see if there was any reaction. I mean, we are blessed beyond belief in comparison with some of those parents who had children that you look at them and they're crippled and they're ugly and they're grotesque. And overcoming that, Hearing the doctor tell them in that moment of shock and disbelief that you have a Down Syndrome child, then realizing this is for life, we're going to cope with that, we're going to deal with that, we're going to care for this child for all of the rest of this child's life, that's something that shows you that human beings are capable of digging down inside and having compassion and having a feeling of genuine care and empathy toward a child and of, of going through the grueling sacrifice that it must entail in having a child like that. I want you to turn to Second Corinthians 5.17, and I want to draw an analogy from this, because actually God tells us something is being formed inside of us in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. There are several scriptures that bear on this, and I'll just give you a couple or three of them. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, like the new, brand new baby that is engendered in the womb, completely separate eventually, a new creature or a new creation. The word is interchangeable in the Greek. Old things are passed away. Behold, All things are become new. Let's turn to Ephesians, the fourth chapter, a couple of other places that talk about this new man. Ephesians 4 and verse 21, If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former way of life. Conversation is a poor word. Conduct is better. But you could say lifestyle or way of life. The old man, that is the old you, the way you used to be, which is corrupt, we have to admit that to ourselves, according to the deceitful lusts. The deceitful lusts are the lusts for money, for power, for success, for adoration and worship. Some of the greatest phobias and psychoses of life, especially those with which we dealt in grade school and high school. High school and teenage is a painful period of time. Uh, That's why the older generation has always said it's a pity to waste youth on the young. We have all these hang-ups. We are fearfully desirous, almost tremblingly lustful for the approbation, the approval, the adulation, the adoration, if you will, the worship of our peer group. We want to be accepted, we want to be adored, and we will do anything. I mean, when we're kids splattering the pimples on the mirror and looking at, at all the things that give us the hang-ups that have caused tall kids to have deformity of the spine because they didn't want to be tall when they should have thought, how blessed I am, I'm a head higher than any other kid in the crowd, and especially if it's a girl. I remember one girl who was nearly six feet tall in the sixth or seventh grade, and the poor thing was the most miserable human being I've ever seen because there was no place she could escape. Here she was, just like a stilt walking along, and she was absolutely miserable. Parents aren't able to help kids over that period of time for some reason. They all go through the same excruciating pain of a deep desire to be popular, to be loved, adored, liked, and accepted, but instead, no matter who they are, and sometimes the prettiest girl and the handsomest young boy in class, will have a deep inferiority complex, and they've still got these feelings of of what is called in the Bible these lusts of desire to actually be worshipped by other people, which is a deceiving lust. I think the reason God put the first two commandments in the order in which he placed them, to have no other gods before him and not to make idols, is because deep-seated within the human heart is a desire for that kind of love, which is adulation or worshipful love, to actually be looked up to in a sense of awe and respect to where our opinions, our attitudes, our tastes are absolutely supreme. And we go through life shocked and then sometimes hurt and oftentimes mad, angry, when in any casual conversation we say, I like it this way or I assume that or I think this or guess what, and someone disagrees with us, it makes us angry, and we can't quite stand that. People like to have sycophants around them. The Caesars of yesteryear, and men who are very narrow-minded, like to have yes-men around them. They don't like to have no-men or maybe-men, they like to have yes-men. That's why I was so impressed with what General Omar Bradley told me, that he would never have a man in his staff who did not disagree with him at least once a month, and that he would never shout at someone who could not shout back. Well, no one can shout back at a five-star general. The Caesars were not that way. The bearer of bad news during the ancient time of the Roman Empire was thrown to the lions. Someone came in bearing bad news about some distant event. Part of the legion had been killed by some of the Dacians or whatever up on the northeastern frontier, thrown to the lions. Uh, You you don't like the news, so you kill the bearer of the message. And that's the way they were. It says, verse 23, "...to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man." Now, you know, you can put on a brand new suit, you can get a new haircut, you can change a lot of things about your physical appearance, and you can look new or different. You can have a facelift, you can go and have plastic surgery... But there's something you cannot do by any of these artifices that are exterior or surface. You cannot change the heart and what's going on inside of you. That was another lesson about the Special Olympics. It was also a lesson about, what do they call it, this uh, big happy woman contest or whatever. They had a a, a miss or a missus, whatever, big America. And all these women were like, size 54 or whatever, and they were jolly and they were bouncy and they were happy, and they didn't think of themselves as fat. They had a beauty contest, talent contest and everything, and it showed the winner on national television, and they're big women. I mean, let's face it, they're big bone, they were born from big parents apparently. You look at cattle and they're little Shetland horses and they're great big percherons and, uh, shet- and uh, draft horses and so on, Clydesdales, and human beings are the same, and some people frankly can't help it. Swim is not necessarily beautiful, I don't care what they say in all the diet and exercise classes in the world, and the figure salons, and you don't have to be someone who stands twice real quick in the same place to cast a shadow to be really beautiful. You can be large, and what goes on inside is the most important thing, and that's what this woman said that was interviewed. It's what's in here, and that's so very true. That you put on the new man, which after God, or like God, or according to God, in his similitude, is created in righteousness and true holiness. And he goes on to say, don't lie, be angry, but don't sin, don't give place to the devil, don't be a filthy thief or a crook, but work so you can give to others. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, etc. And grieve not, verse 30, the Holy Spirit of God. That's quite a concept that is repeated oft times in the Bible. I have said, and it's not just a cliche of mine. I've read it somewhere 20, 30 years ago, that you are what you eat. Now you can go, and I do every couple of years at least, to have a complete physical checkup for my pilot's license, and they analyze your blood. And I was talking to my brother-in-law out in California uh, the night before last, and he. Was elated because he'd completely changed his lifestyle and he was eating differently and he decided just not even, he was never, had any kind of a drinking problem, but he would drink like a lot of us do now and then or on the weekends or a cocktail with dinner, glass of wine or whatever. He decided just to just get completely off alcohol. He's up in his 60s. Well, he was elated because the doctor had given him a blood test and his, uh, what is it, cholesterol, the fat content, was down to zilch and his heart was in good shape, and he'd lost some weight, he was feeling good, he was playing better golf, and he was just really uh, feeling so good on the very day that the doctor told him the kind of shape he was in, after analyzing his blood, he went out and walked up and down a steep hill at Avala Bay that I know of out there at Morro Bay, a beautiful golf course, carrying his clubs and played 27 holes, and he's up in his 60s. So he's in real good shape. Well, you know, you would be amazed at the rapidity with which your bloodstream under incredible pressure. You have blood pressure, and it is under a tremendous amount of pressure, and if you ever sever an artery, artery, you will see what that is, because the blood will absolutely just spurt out of an artery. In about as much time as I could click my hand three times, your blood will completely circulate from your heart to the extremities of your body, just boom, and I mean it is just hurling through your body. It is amazing how quickly, when you ingest a poison or something that is wrong for you, or let's say you have an empty stomach, Uh, maybe some of you in this building smoke. That's not my business, that's your business, and it's your problem. Uh, It's not my problem, thanks be to God. I whipped my problem in 1953, and my lungs are probably as pink as a baby's anymore, and that's a great blessing to have them that way. But... I remember what it was like when I would pile out of my bunk aboard the aircraft carrier in the Navy and reach for my shirt, which I always tied right there on my bunk, and the package of cigarettes was in it. And I was in the middle bunk of a tier of four, and before my feet hit the cold steel deck, I had a cigarette in my mouth and going. Well, literally, if you've never smoked, in about two heartbeats of that first ingestion of a complete lung full of smoke, you literally feel it to your fingertips they tingle and become dull and kind of numb, and it's a a euphoric feeling that you get because your whole bloodstream is utterly polluted. And you're taking smoke with its tars and nicotine and putting it in the little tiny microscopic globules like billions of them, the air sac that is your lungs, like a big butterfly-shaped pair of water wings inside your chest. And instantly, because of the millions of little red blood cells that are ganging up there and the little blood corpuscles that are lining up in the tiny capillary system in your lungs, it carries it into the rest of your body. You are what you eat. There are four ways, I won't go into a lot of grotesque or scatological references here either, by which things get into your bloodstream. That is ingestion, eating or breathing injection, shots, etc., insertion, or absorption. Now, ingestion is the main way by which you put things in your bloodstream. You do that through your mouth. And, you know, when uh, there's one lady out where we live, the poor thing, if she were to fall down, I don't think she could ever stand up again unless somebody just rolled her in an upright position. You look at her and you say, that's terrible that those parents force-fed that kid like that and that somebody came up with a giant potato masher mallet and put the poor thing on her back and just stuffed all those potatoes and and all that cream pie and all that junk into her mouth, because you know she couldn't have done it consciously. You feel sorry for people like that, and it is a problem, and many people literally have a problem like that, which is a physical, dietary, as well as even a glandular problem. Breathing is the other way we ingest. I lived in Los Angeles. I saw the news the other day. They are wondering about shutting down. They probably have some lawsuits. They're going to have to shut down some of the major industries in Los Angeles for the Olympics. They've now recently had 12 straight days of stage one smog alert. They had pictures of the Los Angeles landscape, and I remembered how rotten it was. I would come sailing in there in a falcon. You would see the tips of the mountains poking through absolutely flat, milky white. And the impression was, that's the ocean, and this is the coastline, and here is the sea just flat. And what it was was photochemical smog coming up from the millions of automobiles and the millions, you know, of people in the factories and all the rest of it. Then this, the sun burning the chemicals, causing a change in chemical compound called photochemical reaction. And then the temperature inversion level of the cool sea air that is trapped, gradually heated with the super cool air above and so on, just forms in a very flat, level layer and traps it all in that valley, which is pretty much ringed by mountains. The sea breeze slowly coming toward the warmth of the land keeps it trapped against the mountains, and there it is. And I would call down to Burbank, and I would say, is anybody alive down there? And the guy would kind of laugh. And you get down, and literally it would say, Los Angeles weather, clear, visibility one and one half. Now, that's ridiculous. You know, clear. There are no clouds. It's not raining. There is no fog. It's clear. Bright sunshine, not a cloud in the sky. Visibility one and one half. Or you might say visibility three quarters, smog. You know, that's the weather report. So you find yourself shooting a complete full instrument landing service, ILS approach, on a clear day into Los Angeles. They have conducted tests that show you that people who are non-smokers who live in Los Angeles are the same as a a one-pack-a-day smoker. The equivalent of breathing that stuff, of what it's doing to your lungs, is debilitating beyond belief. How thankful I am to be out of it. Injection, sometimes in hospitals, of course, or doctors or whatever, or even dentists, by putting Novocaine or other things into you, will inject something into your body. We get shots, we get vaccinations, people go, their kids get vaccinations, and so on. Not all of that is is all bad. I remember one time landing in Manila and there was a cholera epidemic and they would not let me leave the airport. I was stuck. I wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't going to my hotel and I wasn't coming back to the United States and I wasn't going on to Japan. I was going into that little room with those health health officials and they were going to inoculate me against cholera. I didn't have anything to say about it at all. Of course I prayed and hoped that I would not be polluted and die and I feared a little bit because I would had my bloodstream fairly well cleansed after all the shots that I was given in the Navy in 1948. But you know sometimes they will put those things into you and it becomes a part of your body. Now right now inside my body are chemical little elements or agents or antibodies, I guess living organisms like a virus or an antivirus or whatever that have been built up and they have all sorts of labels. Some of them know to attack a polio virus that would get into my body. Or a smallpox virus. Cholera, I think they have to renew. They tend to die out. But there are certain of these things they can inject into your bloodstream that can actually form antibodies that can attack germs and kill them so that you do not get a disease. Insertion, like snuff, and I won't go into that, nose, ears, eyes, and etc. Absorption, you may have known that some farmers have made a mistake in mixing something like chlordane or dieldrin or endrin or, or lindane, rather, or some of the chlorinated hydrocarbons, and even one drop of the stuff that they might spray on a cotton crop that has to be mixed one part for so many millions on your skin can kill you in moments. You might not realize the extent to which the skin absorbs and then takes into the bloodstream certain poisons or impurities. But it can. Your skin and your pores, when you perspire, is another method of giving off poisons. When you breathe out, you give off poisons. Various bodily glands, your eyes, your ears, etc., won't go into detail, give off and exude or otherwise reject from the body certain poisons. Your bloodstream must be kept clean and pure and must be preserved and protected Because the Bible says the life is in the blood thereof. Your bloodstream is the most important method by which your physical health is preserved, probably bar none. And, of course, your lungs and all these things I'm talking about play their part in that. Now then, you are what you eat. When I was, for a brief time, the pastor of the Big Sandy Church in 1955, when I was waiting there for my middle son to be born, there was a lady who lived in Big Sandy, a young woman. Her husband was an ex-Marine. They were very poor, almost illiterate, very poorly educated people, and she was pregnant for the umpteenth time. Well, I went to call upon them at their request. I walked into that house it was out on the old Big Sandy Highway, and the stench that hit me in the face nearly knocked me over. That was the most incredible pigsty I've ever been in in my entire life. One glance in the ancient old clapboard house and the kitchen and so on, dishes piled that high, Built that woman had taken a wet mop, and apparently knowing that I was coming, and water was still standing about that deep on the wooden floor, had just given it a few swipes, and there was clothing everywhere. It looked like an absolute aftermath uh, of uh, a hurricane or whatever. As I walked in, it was a little baby crawling out in the mud that had dribbled off the porch and mud of its own making because it had probably messed and fouled its diapers three or four times in three or four different directions in the last couple, three, four hours. And the parent had not changed the diapers. And the kid had mud caked and sticking to his diapers and all parts of its face, was putting dirt in its mouth and everything. Just absolutely a pitiful spectacle. I look at this woman, she was slatternly and thin. And her bones protruding through a kind of a sallow, stretched skin. She had maybe one or two little remaining blackened teeth that were eaten completely away, and her belly was swollen out to here. She was pregnant with yet another child. She was having all kinds of pains and troubles and problems. She had all kinds of deficiencies. She wanted me to haul out my little bottle of oil and to pray for her because she was in such terrible health and to pray for the baby. Well, I sat down, I began asking her a little bit about her diet. Oh no, she never drank milk, she couldn't stand the stuff. I said, but don't you realize that that's your major source of calcium? And I said, the reason you're losing your teeth and that you have through these pregnancies is because the baby's getting all the calcium. The baby is robbing your body of calcium, if you would fall and break your leg, it may never heal. And I said, don't you realize, you know, I tried to talk to her about the baby and what I, I asked about what she was eating. Well, they were real, real poor people. I reached in my pocket and took a $20 bill, and at that time was a lot of money 1955, to me anyway, because I was making 75 a week, but anyway, I gave her $20 of my own money and I said I knew where they could get raw whole milk in Big Sandy, and I told her, I said, you buy milk. I found out later she never did. Well it happened that, that their child was born at the same time David was born in the clinic up at Big Sandy, and was in that clinic at the same time, and that's just before I took off on a baptizing tour in 1955 down through Texas and Louisiana. And I, had still, I was still a junior in Ambassador College. I did not graduate till 1956. I was over there for the summer. When I was pastoring that church, I'd just barely been ordained a matter of weeks or a month or two before. So the babies were born, and of course we didn't have the faintest idea at that time that David was born defective in his hearing, but, I mean, he was a beautiful baby boy, natural childbirth, and perfectly formed, about eight pounds, some odd ounces or whatever. And... Uh, here was this little, rail-thin, emaciated baby lying there in this clinic, literally with sores that big around, as big as a dollar, all over its little body, open, raw, red sores, where there was no skin. That child was near death. Now, that's a lesson spiritually. If we are what we eat, then that new thing being formed inside of us, that little creature in Christ, is exactly what we ingest, what we take in through all of our five senses, and what we take in primarily, as you know, through the mind. Now, the way you get things in through your mind, blind people have a sense of feel, and a sense of smell, and hearing, and taste. So they have four of the five senses, and they can actually develop some of those more acutely so that their fingers can touch little bumps on paper very, very rapidly, and they can read as fast as you can with Braille. Deaf people, two of my sons are deaf, can become very, very alert and aware with all of their other senses, especially their eyes. They will notice things going on around them that you will never see. And they also feel, even sensations of vibrations actually can get out and dance, and they know when the music is too loud because they actually are feeling, where well, you don't. You don't feel it. You hear it. You're not aware of the vibration. They actually feel it through the floor and feel it beating on their body if they go to a place where there is music being played and somebody's beating a drum or playing instruments very, very loudly. Now, in your spiritual life, it says in Romans 5 and verse 5 that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by or through the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. And we know in Galatians 5 and verse 22, it gives us the spiritual qualities that are the most obvious, the most immediately evident If we are converted Christians, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence, the proof that you have the Holy Spirit of God is this, love, and that's outgoing, charitable love, joy, and that's happiness, ebullience, an outgoing feeling of excitement and enthusiasm, peace, that's a good, solid, quiet, unperturbed, deep-flowing, abiding sense of contentment, of well-being the absence of feelings of being distraught or frustrated. It's the absence of harangues and fighting and enervation, and exhaustion, anger and arguments. It is a good, deep sense of well-being. Long-suffering, having patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. Open in 2 Corinthians 10 is a very important scripture having to do with the weapons of our warfare, which the shield illustrates. That are not carnal. Verse three and four. We don't walk in the flesh, even though we, we. I'm sorry. We walk or live in the flesh. We do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, physical, or carnal, but mighty through God. Of the pulling down of strongholds, casting down reasonings, imaginations, and every high thing. Now he's talking mental high things. Every high thing doesn't mean destroying high buildings or knocking down high trees or, or whatever, TV antenna, talking about vanity and ego and exalted human thoughts. Every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. You look on things after the outward appearance, etc. Well, Primarily, our answer is probably yes, we tend to do that. We still look on things after the outward appearance. I want to take you to an example of Jesus Christ that is very, very difficult for us to understand. John 11, beginning in verse 20. John 11 and verse 20. This shows that Jesus Christ of Nazareth had reached a level, an exalted level, of the control of thought and emotion of the flowing, as he said, he that comes unto me out of his belly shall flow rivers of living waters, of the flowing of love and concern away from himself in a genuineness that none of us have remotely come close to achieving. You know that the world's churches don't even understand the shortest verse in the Bible, verse 35 of John 11, Jesus wept. They don't understand it because they don't read it in context and they don't understand what Jesus was going through. Martha heard that Jesus was coming, verse 20, went to meet him, and Mary sat still in the house. Then Martha said, and probably tearfully and with her voice breaking, Lord, if you'd just been here, my brother, that was Lazarus, would not have died. If you'd been here in time, you could have healed him, but he got sick and he died. But I know that even now, whatsoever you will ask of God, God will give it to you, she said. But actually, did she really believe that? Well, events proved that she was saying it rather hopelessly here. It was like a cliche. Jesus said unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Now let's see whether she meant what she just said. Martha said, I know thee will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. That's like the statement that I heard preached out of the pulpit years ago. Quote, Hebrews 11, these all died in faith not having received the promise. That was the promise of healing. So if you die being sick, you will receive the promise in the resurrection. Is that what that scripture means? Was the promise all the patriarchs of old, from Abraham, from Noah on down, they did not receive? What is the promise that is enumerated in that chapter but the promise of God's kingdom? These died in faith, not having received that promise. It is not a cop-out to use before people so you have an excuse and aren't willing to admit that we are weak and we lack faith and that great healings are not taking place in a church because if you want to convince people that you're infallible and that you're God's great servant, then you can't admit to an Achilles heel. You can't admit to weak need faith. You can't say, well, the, faith, the lack of faith is partly my problem. You've got to convince them it's your problem. See, it's not my problem. So the best way to do it is twist the Scripture and to preach out of Hebrews 11 that these all died. Now, sometimes people die from this and that and the other thing, but they died in faith, not having received the promise. That isn't what it's saying. Well, you look at this example here. Jesus did not cop out, but she did thy brother shall rise again. Martha said, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection. That's available now. I'm the resurrection. It's in and through me. And the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. That means permanently. Shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, here are some of his dearest friends, some of the closest people with whom he continually uh, was in contact during his ministry, the two Marys, Mary and Martha, too. She said, Yea, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, which sh- should come into the world. So, you see, she kind of dodged it. Yes, I believe you're the Christ, you're the Son of God, but he was asking her, Do you believe that I'm able to resurrect him now, that he's as good as alive right now, this minute? And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary her sister secretly, saying, The Master has come and calls for you. As soon as she, Mary, heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him some distance away. The Jews then, which were with her in the house and comforted her when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goes to the grave to weep there. Now you see, the funerals during that day, they actually hired professional weepers. And they would have people come to the tomb and they would beat their chests and they would tear their hair and they would tear their garments and they would wail. And they would have flutes and they would have instruments that sounded like a keening sound and they would uh, have a terrible dirge going on as if, you know, just squeezing the last bit of hopelessness and tear out of everyone. She goes to the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying unto him, Lord, if you had just been here... My brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And they said, and said, Where have you laid him? Jesus said. And they said, unto him, Lord come and see. Jesus wept. Now, why did he weep? Put yourself in his place. I will cry because other people are crying, right? Now, when I see that, if I'm around people and four, five, or six of them are weeping and I'm number seven, I probably would say, well, why not join the crowd? I mean, for pity's sake, everybody's heartbroken, everybody's crying, so I will cry. I don't do it consciously, but I mean the emotion is there and you simply feel like crying. I had to fly a free the middle of the week over to Dublin, perform a funeral for a young man who had been thrown from a horse. And uh, he was just taking a horseback ride and he was out over a culvert or a, a railroad bridge or something, and a horse threw him and he fell down, hit his head, and he was dead. Here was a young man, 32, two years older than my son, and with a young family and a wife that is expecting, excuse me, my little microphone can lose, is expecting in I don't know how many months, which makes it a kind of a double tragedy because. Here is the mother at the funeral with a swollen uh, belly there, a little child that will never see the father that engendered the child. And I have to preach a funeral sermon first in the little chapel, and we go out in the country into an old graveyard in the heat of the summer, and they're all there sitting in the front row, and I look down, there's this rocky grave and a young man there, and they're all weeping. Well, I'm looking, and here is the name of the grandfather, and there's the father who is, who is junior, and then the one that we're burying is the second. A whole three generations of these men, and here's this young man cut off with a baby that is yet to be born. And I kneel briefly by the mother, and her mother is there, and all of them. Of course, they're all weeping. And I try to comfort her and hold her hand, and I said, I wonder what you're going to name that baby if it's a boy. And at this point, I break up. Now, don't ask me why, but I do. I don't say, but now's the time. It's here in my notes says here, Christ Ted. You know, I, I've never done that in my life. I don't know how. But I really couldn't help myself because I thought, I wonder what you're going to name that boy because, you know, here's several generations of this family and it's probably going to be James Reed third. see. And uh, so it was a time uh, everybody was emotional and I got a little bit emotional. Now, if I read this correctly, everybody loved Lazarus. Jesus loved Lazarus. He was close to him. He was close to Martha and the two Marys. They were all crying. Naturally, that's why he cried, right? Wrong. That's not why he cried. He was not carried away with their emotions. We just read in the context, we have absolute proof that Jesus already knew what he was going to do at Lazarus' tomb. He knew that moments from now, he was going to be talking to a living Lazarus who was going to come out of his tomb. And you can read the rest of the account right quickly. The Jews said, Behold how he loved him. So they misunderstood. And the churches buy that argument and they misunderstand and they take this as an example that Jesus wept in the same way I wept at the ceremony the other day because they were weeping, because it was an emotional occasion and out of grief and feeling and empathy toward them for their loss. No, it's not why Christ cried. Some said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? And then he groaned again within himself and came to the grave and said, Take away the stone, Etc. and then called out, Lazarus, come forth, you know, in verse 43, and here comes Lazarus walking out of the tomb. Believe it or not, and this is difficult to understand, Jesus was learning at this point he was learning a little bit of an additional lesson of rejection. He was learning the experience that no matter how dear and how close you are to people and how much you pour out of your heart to them that you hope they will understand that you say A and they hear B. They do not hear, they do not absorb or take in or get what you're trying to communicate to them. It was to them a religious cliché. I am the resurrection of the life. Yes, Lord, I know you're the Son of God. And it's the way people are oftentimes in the church today. We parrot our religious clichés. How often do we mean it to the depth of our being, and how often do we just say the right things? Now, it says in the book of Hebrews, and I'll turn to that quickly. Back in the book of Hebrews, just before James and after the Timothys and so on, That Jesus Christ of Nazareth, in the days of his flesh, verse 7 of chapter 5, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. I believe Christ was suffering feelings of rejection. Feelings of loss in the same way that he suffered feelings of rejection at the following scene. It is the Last Supper. Christ knows with every grain of sand in the hourglass and in clocks that the time of his arrest and his beating, his kangaroo court or trial and his crucifixion are approaching. And he was very heavy at that Supper. And we read every year in the Passover John 14 through 17 and how he prayed to the Father that they might be one as we are and how he loved his own and loved them unto the end and said this, you know, don't be sad, etc. because I'll send the Comforter. And you read those very moving, very heavy, almost lyrical words like a great moving piece of music or poetry of the Lord's the real, Lord's Prayer of John 14 through 17. Then you couple that with a 20-second psalm the, wool, the bulls of Bashan have roared and I can count and tell all of my bones, etc. They divide my clothing. Here is Christ in the heaviest moment of anticipation of his impending death and at that moment the disciples break out into a fight. An argument ensues. I'm going to be the greatest. No, I will be. Lord, let's settle this. Who is going to be the greatest? And of course the mother, Zebedee's wife, we don't know her name thankfully, was always picking at Jesus. Please, get my sons in on the ground floor. My boys, bless their hearts. James and John, they're the best of all the Christians. (laughs) Wouldn't you like to have one at your right and one at your left hand? Make them the best in your kingdom. They're sitting around looking for all of the exalted jobs, the highest salaries, the greatest luster. They were just as carnal as a bunch of gravel or fertilizer. You better believe it. You're not speaking evil of the disciples to admit they were as carnal as any human being you've ever met. Anybody in a time like that, in that time and that place, has got to be so insensitive, so absolutely unsensitive, insensitive to Christ's mood and his feeling and what he is going through that it's ridiculous. Have you ever seen people like that in a dinner conversation or people with their friends and so on? Or like someone with an infirmity. I mean, it's almost like someone comes up to you and asks a question with an impediment of speech and you lisp at them in return. It's that insensitive. It's that insensitive. The Bible says, don't put a stumbling block before the blind and don't curse the deaf. It's that insensitive. It's that insensitive. Christ is in the heaviest moment of anticipation of his death, and these characters are fighting over who gets to be the greatest in the kingdom. That had to hurt. That had to be a learning experience. Now back to Lazarus' tomb. He began to realize they just don't get it. They don't really understand who I am to the depths of their being. They don't know that I have but to call upon my Father and Lazarus is going to walk out of the tomb. Now we get to a level of understanding that is so far beyond us that we cannot attain to it as to how Christ could have through the power of God's Holy Spirit, his outgoing love and concern toward his fellow man, toward the human beings with whom he was dealing, so thoroughly developed that he wanted their comprehension and their understanding more than practically any other goal in life. And when he saw that somehow even he had failed to communicate that to them, that they couldn't get it, they couldn't understand it, He groaned within himself, he sighed within himself, he wept because of their lack of faith, because of their lack of understanding, because of their human feelings that death is the all-encompassing enemy. It is the final closing of the giant 2,000-ton door. When death has occurred, all hope is lost. It's over. That's the end of it. It's a fait accompli. Now let's go on from there. There's one thing we know, Lazarus is dead, and he's going to stay that way. But Jesus wept because of their lack of understanding of God, of God's power, and of Christ's power, their lack of faith. That is the most incredible example of outgoing concern. He wasn't hurt because of his lack of luster. He wasn't hurt because they hurt his feelings. He was hurt because they were deficient. He was hurt because they were incomplete, because they were faithless, because they didn't understand. The most difficult scripture to... I'm going to call these the impossible attributes. You've heard of the Beatitudes. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13 in conclusion here. This is the impossible attributes. I said we are what we eat physically. And we are what we think, what we ingest or what is inserted or injected or what we absorb into ourselves mentally and spiritually. And what is being formed in us is either going to be grotesque and is going to be like a deformed thing which will never get into God's kingdom but will be aborted or rejected or will be like a stillbirth because God will not have any new creature in Christ born into his family and his kingdom that is not absolutely perfect. There will be no such thing as a spiritual birth defect. We will all be glorious and perfect, or we will not be there. I was just pondering this thought a while ago, and I was thinking, to what extent? I know what triggered it. Some long-buried thought in my mind, some sense of deja vu, something that had happened 20, 30 years ago, was resurrected by some other thought. And I didn't even know that thought was there. I thought, you know, it's amazing the capacity of the human mind to file away, I guess, billions of, of various little thoughts and, and so on. And many areas of our past, our youth, whatever, are long buried and completely dead. And it's exactly like a computer where you've got maybe hundreds of these tapes or disks or whatever, and you got them all filed on the shelf as long as you don't stick them in a the computer and turn it on. And, and and punch it up they're never going to be there but they're filed away they're kind of dead but there they are the so-called software and I got to thinking when it is time for me to be judged now and of course we're being judged every day but I mean at the time of Christ's second coming is it still going to be possible for that ugly thought to be brought to my mind and I got to thinking how much exercise is it going to take to where I have perfect forgetfulness, and to where whole areas of my mind can be as blanked out as the missing Nixon tape segments. I mean, the secretary just used some scissors and burned up the segment and spliced it together, and it's not there anymore. You might be able to hear all the other expletives and all the other crude language, but you can't hear that missing segment because it's gone. Now, Nixon would be a whole lot better off if all the tapes had been burnt, wouldn't he? And so would the whole nation. Of course, he'd been better off if he never taped them in the first place. But I got to thinking about that analogy. There are many things locked in my mind, buried in my mind, as they are in yours. I could stand here and say a few expletives, a few scatological references, a few dirty stories, a few words. Wouldn't be a man, woman, maybe a few children, that's why I wouldn't do it, in the room, who wouldn't but have their mind resurrect a rather evil part of their brain which would say, Yeah, I've heard that before, right? I had to ask myself the question, to what extent is the ingestion of God's Holy Spirit, the diet and the intake of God's love, going to completely replace and erase these other thoughts so that at the time of Jesus Christ of Nazareth's arrival, they just won't be there? Another analogy every now and then I run across something really ancient I keep all my old sermon notes so I've got folders I guess if I'd stacked them all up here that thick and hundreds and hundreds of pages of sermons and I'll look Feast of Tabernacles 1961 Squaw Valley or whatever and I'll find oh i preached that sermon but you know ancient old bits and pieces from my college days I've still got papers I turn in with a grade on them from uh, Dr. Ray's international relations class in 1953 and I will look at all that and I will say you know Here's something I wrote with my own hand in ink many, many years ago. And here are things. The other day, I even found uh, some pictures that I had taken in the Navy and I'd sent to my, my sister. She gave them back to me, and I'd written a description of the aircraft landing on the flight deck of the carrier in 1950, probably 49 or 50, maybe 51, uh, overseas in Korea. It had to be 51, beg your pardon. And uh, I thought to myself, You know, someday Jesus Christ, when he investigates our lives, is going to be able to go through the debris, if you will, the paraphernalia, the things we tend to keep in our attics and closets. I sure wouldn't want to have some dirty joke I wrote out longhand, showed to somebody, folded up and forgot, buried deeply underneath a ton of all sorts of memorabilia and paraphernalia in my closet when Christ comes. I wouldn't want him going through all my college papers and say, what's this, Ted? And then unfold it. Oh, no. And then look at me. Any more than I would want some of these thoughts in my mind of which my mental computer, you know, they say garbage in, garbage out. Well, believe it or not, in my mind over the years, especially during the Navy, lots of garbage in. I find out it's still there. And some horrible series of events can resurrect it and it can pop into the forefront of your mind, and you can think some of these horrible things. How long, O Lord, you might say, before all that is erased from your mind and will no longer be put into your head? These are the impossible attributes. Verse 4, chapter 13, Love, a charitable love, the kind of love that Christ had, suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. It does not vaunt itself. It is not puffed up filled with vanity, does not behave itself unseemly, that is, it is always sensitive to the type of behavior that is required in any given situation, is not selfish or seeks not her own, is not easily provoked. I'm not easily provoked, but I am provokable. People can and things can provoke me, and when they provoke me, I find that it sets a mood in place. Now, for six years, we've lived in an area, and now there are people building houses. Well, I was going to buy one of the lots. It didn't work out that way, down below me, between myself and the lake. And they sold all the lots. Now the second house is being erected. Yesterday morning, I look, and I can't believe my eyes. They put up a huge scaffolding. Here's the framework for a low one-story home. The requirements, according to the code, if I had bought one of the lots, are that you may not have more than a single story house I looked out there with amazement and I got in a bad attitude and I began to analyze that it affected me last night and I let it affect me for hours well it won't affect me anymore because I've swallowed that now but it really bothered me and I said something to some of the people of the club because here is a 45 degree angle that stupid thing looks like a teepee Literally, it could, if you wanted to flatten them out, 10 feet per story, be a three-story building looming up between me and the lake because of this ridiculous architectural style they got going now of a little flat eight-foot ceiling and then 28 or 30 feet of attic space just so you see this huge roof over the structure. Well... I began analyzing my emotions. First, I thought I'll burn it down. Well, I didn't really, but you know what I mean. I mean, I, 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 I'm, Here's the beautiful golf course, part of the lake, all the trees, disappearing behind this monolithic monster that is sitting out there. So I began to, re- yeah, it's possible to provoke me, and that thing provokes me. So now I'm going to have to live there and look at it. I'm going to have to say, well, it's a beautiful roof. I may never get to the point to where I just say it automatically. I might still have to force myself, but you know, the woman that refused to drink the milk probably never could have got to where she liked it, but she could have forced it down. She could have forced it down. And that's sometimes what you have to do. These are the impossible attributes. Sometimes you've got to force yourself to have these attributes in your mind and heart. Thinks no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. I know of people who rejoice in iniquity. When they find somebody else sin, they say, aha. Matter of fact, we were talking just last night at dinner of a guy we know in the ministry who's taking people out and wanting to know about who's doing what, who's going out with whose secretary out in Pasadena. And again, he's he's getting his dirt list ready because people revel in that. Some people do backstrokes through sin the same way that uh, fleas do through my dog. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. I won't read all the rest of this. We know in part, we prophesy in part. Verse 10, when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. We can apply this spiritually. I understood as a child. I thought like a child does. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. I look back and if I see anything I did, painted or my crayons when I was a child, it looks ridiculous. Now we see through a a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. The Holy Spirit divides asunder even unto the marrow of the bone. That's meant to tell us that God's Holy Spirit knows every last little bit of missing tape of which our mind is capable of bringing to mind. And I wonder to what extent as we live this life, God does not require of us as we ingest or absorb or take in the Bible, personal prayer, social, spiritual contacts, we blot out And we erase those other evil thoughts by taking in the right thoughts. I look at this world's entertainment, and I wonder what percent of it is really worth even spending five minutes at. I look at television, and I wonder what percent of that is of any value at all. It's 90% vomit. It really is 90% filth and stupidity. Even the news is, is sometimes questionable. And almost 99, 40, percent of advertising is absolutely ridiculous. But that is the stuff, you got to realize, with which your mind is filled, if you watch a lot of it, all week long. Now, on the job, if you're around people who curse, and on and on, I mean, what you hear, if you hear God's name taken in vain more often than you do in sincerity, guess what is being put into your mind? I remember slipping up one time as a college professor and saying a dirty word out of the, poppet, I mean, the podium before a class. I got a little exercised about some particular problem, and a word slipped out of my mind. I thought, where did that come from? Well, it came out of four years in the Navy of saying it automatically. And for some reason, after all those years, it just. I'll tell you something. You get back in the habit of using a lot of those words pretty soon. It's going to come out of your mouth. At the least expected moment, when you don't want it to, you're going to reveal, hey, he probably talks that way all the time. So think about that. You are what you eat physically and we are spiritually the little creation that is being formed and shaped inside of us what we ingest and what we take in spiritually.